Thank you so much, Amanda. Uh, I want to thank you all for, for having me back. Uh, it's always a pleasure uh, to be here and to see the, the really amazing things that you all do as a community. Um, uh, I want to thank Rich Reese, my old friend, for, for asking me to come back. I want to thank all of you for donating part of your, uh, your offering plate to my organization, Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Uh, and I was especially happy to be part of the uh, solar celebration earlier this morning. Uh, what a beautiful solar day. What abundance, what clean energy abundance we have for the, for the taking, for the peaceful taking from our great cosmos, our great universe. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, I went solar at my own home in Tacoma Park in 2001. And I had a lot of people who asked me then, well, why did you do it? And what's the payback period? And, you know, try to crunch the numbers and all that. And the bottom line is I would reach a point and say, look, the, the, one of the major reasons I went solar is I'm a happier person knowing that energy is being created by solar panels on my roof. And I predict that your wonderful, joyful community is going to be even happier going forward, knowing that those solar panels are up there capturing clean, abundant energy. So congratulations. You have much to look forward to. Um, I uh, am a member of the Tacoma Park Presbyterian Church, a wonderful uh, congregation that welcomes all people uh, to our community. Uh, you know, I, I was born in Georgia and grew up a, a southern Baptist, and so I've been a recovering Southern Baptist for many years, uh, and there's a lot that I don't remember with fondness about growing up a Southern Baptist, but I do remember some of the wonderful Bible stories that my mom used to tell me and my sister uh, before bed, and uh, one of my favorite was the story of the uh, traveler during biblical times, who was robbed and left for dead along the road, and another a number of people come by who should have helped this poor, robbed, and injured traveler did not stop, did not pause to offer aid, and then finally, uh, a uh, kind, generous person did stop and help this person, and the next morning, I was telling my friends at school and my teacher about this story, about the story of the goodest American. <laughs> we have some Americans who are good, and then there are the goodest Americans, and that's the one who helped this poor traveler. And, you know, in all seriousness, during the events of this past week, you know, we have seen some amazing American heroes. You know, some great Samaritan people who did everything they could the second, the second the tragedy struck. I mean, just amazing how ordinary people did extraordinary things this past week. Uh, people with their own hands who were stemming the bleeding of the grievously wounded. People with their own hands, spontaneously, putting out people whose bodies were on fire, with their own hands. Just amazing. And all the police and all the average people who helped and, and really remind us that we are fundamentally good. 
99.9999% of us, all the time, are fundamentally good. But I couldn't help this past week and seeing the goodness contrasted to the evil. The Samaritan actions contrasting the evil. I couldn't help but wonder when that same level of moral clarity, that same immediate good response to moral challenge is going to kick in in this country when it comes to arguably, and I believe, an even greater threat. And that is the fact that our physical world is changing dramatically. I mean, imagine if those same people in Boston, those same police, those same runners and their families, what if they were given six months heads up that this bombing was being planned and that these two particular individuals were going to do this at this time and in this way? What if we had been warned explicitly that this threat was coming? Imagine... There's no way the bombing would have happened. We would have, I mean, just period. It would have been prevented. We would have done everything we could as a city, as a nation to prevent it. But we didn't have that warning, and it happened. But when it comes to our changing physical world, when it comes to this great crisis of climate change, we have been warned over and over and over again. We have been warned... A hundred thousand times beyond sufficiency that this threat is coming. We know how it's coming. We know what's causing it. We know which particular corporations and their representatives are driving it. We have been told what this will mean for our children. We've been had to explain to us the food insecurity that will come to countries that are so poor that they contribute almost nothing to the problem of climate change. We have been completely and fully warned. And yet still, we do not act with that same immediacy, that clarity, that urgency that we've seen that we're capable of during this last week. You know, 10 years ago, if I'd given this talk to this group or any group in this area, I would have had to bring, you know, talk about the fundamentals of climate change, what's causing it, you know, talk a little bit theoretically about what will happen to the Arctic and how the Arctic will, will melt and talk about future impacts and future extremes. And today, instead, we're living it. We're living it. I mean, wherever you go on this planet, I talked to the cab driver in downtown, downtown Tokyo, the nomadic people in the highlands of Ethiopia, uh, Australian ranchers, wherever you go. You don't have to say, have you noticed that it's gotten warmer? You don't have to say that. All you have to do all over the world is say, tell me about the strange weather you've experienced. And the cab driver in Tokyo, the nomadic people, Ethiopia, the rancher in Australia will go on and on and on in the same way that we can here in our virtually unrecognizable weather. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too wet, too dry everywhere in the world. We had record heat in Washington, D.C. last summer. We had the derecho on June 29th, a land hurricane. It was a land hurricane without the warning of a hurricane. Five million people without power. The destruction in our region, the trees, the houses that were damaged, the people who were wounded and killed. Hurricane Sandy, completely anomalous hurricane, late in the season. 
Who ever heard of a landfalling hurricane that far north in late October? The largest wind field of any hurricane recorded in the Atlantic. The lowest barometric pressure of any hurricane that far north. Completely off the charts, anomalous. And half our country still remains in drought and is expected to get drier. Too hot, too wet, too cold, too dry, wherever you go. And then there is the Arctic, which is virtually gone. In September of 2012, it had retreated 80% on its way in the next few years to completely disappearing during the summer season. You know, 50 years from now, people are going to ask us, so the Arctic disappeared... (laughs) So the Arctic disappeared, and then what did you do? (laughs) What came next after it disappeared? And we haven't answered that question. We haven't brought to this great moral challenge the immediacy. We have broken the Arctic. We have broken the Arctic ecosystem. And we are going to break the whole planet if we don't do something about it soon. There are people making their living right now inside the Arctic Circle. In parts of Siberia, native people using reindeer and sleds who make their living now by gathering mastodon tusks. They're being uncovered by the retreating ice. The ivory from mastodon tusks. Extinct mammals from the last, before the last ice age that are now becoming exposed by the hundreds of thousands. These mastodon tusks. And what happened to the mastodons? Oh, climate change rendered them extinct. There's a parable there somewhere for us. We know what's causing the extreme weather that we're seeing all over the world. It's global warming. We know what's causing the global warming. It's our use of fossil fuels. You burn oil, coal, natural gas. Byproduct is CO2. It goes to the atmosphere, traps heat, warms the planet. And increasingly, we're relying on not just fossil fuels, but extreme fossil fuels. And it's this extreme energy that more and more is driving our extreme weather. Uh, We are now, this week, marking the third anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. I mean, they they were operating under amazingly hostile conditions, drilling down through a mile of, of, of ocean water to get to the ocean surface, then going another mile under that, using under extreme pressures, extremely dangerous, hazardous conditions, extreme oil drilling offshore. And then there's mountaintop removal. You know, we used to take the coal out of the mountains in Appalachia. Now we just take the mountains off the coal. Horrific impacts to natural and human communities before we even burn it. We've destroyed so much from mountaintop removal. And then, of course, fracking. I I just flew over West Texas uh, a couple of weeks ago and just astounded by the thousands of fracking wells all across much of West Texas and now the fracking that they want to do here in Virginia and Maryland that they're already doing in Pennsylvania. Again, drill down a mile deep, then start horizontal drilling, put down explosives in the pipe, send shrapnel through the pipe, then pump unbelievable amounts of waters and unknown chemicals in the process triggering earthquakes. Earthquakes, how extreme can we get in our energy extraction that a consequence can be that we cause earthquakes? That's fracking. And then tar sands. Denude an area of Alberta, boreal forests the size of Florida, scrape 
the top off. Literally, the term is peel back. Peel back, geologists call it, and petroleum geologists. Peel back the surface, get to the oily sands underneath, pipe in unbelievable amounts of natural gas, cook that oily sand, extract the oil, put it in a pipeline, and now the proposal, as many of you know, is to build a pipeline 1,700 miles from Alberta all the way to Port Arthur, Texas, and export it to the rest of the world. How extreme, how extreme can our energy extraction be? And it's over this issue of tar sands that I believed in my own heart that this was so extreme that I was obligated, I had a personal moral responsibility to go to jail over this issue. We all know that there are many things that are legal in our society that are perfectly legal that are morally wrong. Just because it's legal doesn't make it right. And it is the struggle of human civilization continuously, of each generation, to discover and highlight what is legal but is wrong and make that thing illegal as well. Whether it be civil rights, women's suffrage, and now climate change. So on February 13th of this year, I had the honor of handcuffing myself to the White House fence to tell the president, don't approve this tar sands pipeline. I had uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. uh, to my right and his wonderful son, Connor. On my left was Julian Bond, the great civil rights activist. And there were many others of us. Uh, Bill McKibben was there, uh, Van Jones, uh, Daryl Hanna. It was just an amazing group of about 50 of us. And uh, I wound up uh, being uh, in a paddy wagon for a couple of hours right next to Julian Bond, and he's a wonderful, graceful, senior representative of, of goodness in this country. And, and uh, sitting next to me, he started asking me a bunch of questions about me. You know, what do you do? And I said, no, 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 there'll be none of that. I'm going to do the, I'm going to ask the question. <laughs> and of course, I immediately, how many times have you been arrested for what causes, you know, apartheid in South Africa, going all the way back to civil rights movement? And the first time he was arrested, was in 1960, uh, protesting the fact that the cafeteria in the state capitol in Atlanta, Georgia, the state capitol building had a cafeteria. They had a sign that said, cafeteria for all Georgians. And of course it wasn't. It was just for, for white Georgians. And Julian Bond went in there and went up to the cashier and said, I'm here to be served. And the cashier said, well, I'm sorry, sir, we don't serve blacks at this cafeteria and he said well wait a minute the sign out front says a cafeteria for all georgians and she said well we really don't mean it (laughs) and he said well i think i'll stay here till you do and that was the first time that he was arrested and i was so honored to be arrested with him now on the the newest and the biggest moral challenge of our time this issue of climate change and extreme energy this is in my view the greatest moral challenge of our time. And I, I, I kind of want to just explain that, why I say that. And first of all, to tell you, what, what motivates me to fight climate change? First and foremost is my son, my 15-year-old son, Michael Alexander Tidwell, born May 30th, 1997. He's the entire world to me. He's the entire world to me. He's going to ask me in 20 or 30 years, the Arctic melted and you did what? So number one, my son. Number two, my faith. I do believe that this is a great creation that was given to us. 
and it is not ours to destroy. That is part of my faith tradition. It is ours to preserve. Motivation number three, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa, in the Congo in the 1980s. Now, I lived among people who it wasn't a question of, you know, clean, burning, hybrid, you know, efficient hybrid car versus gas-guzzling SUV. These people didn't have cars. There were no roads in the area I was a Peace Corps volunteer. It wasn't a question of dirty coal-fired electricity for these people versus clean wind-powered electricity. They didn't have electricity. You're talking about people who are utterly innocent in this calculation, this calculus of global warming. Africa as a continent, almost a billion people, generates about 3% of all the world's greenhouse gases. An innocent continent. And yet this continent, this innocent continent, is already being walloped by climate change. Extraordinary drought, extraordinary flooding, sea level rise. All the impacts are happening to this continent that contributes almost nothing. And I submit to you, this is utterly, utterly morally unacceptable. I mean, in a perfect world, in a really morally just world, a country like ours, less than 4%, less than 5% of the world's population, America, we generate about 25% of all the world's greenhouse gases. 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's greenhouse gases. In a perfect world, in a fair world, we would get 25% of all the world's warming telescoped right down on our nation. Right? That would be fair. And if that were the case, America would already be wrecked. Economically, geographically, socially, culturally, we would be destroyed. Florida would already be a series of islands. Kansas would already be a scrub desert where food could not be grown if we got our fair share of the warming that we generate. But since... We can share the warming with Africa, share it with innocent people in Bangladesh and South Pacific Island nations. We somehow don't get worked up about it. And again, I submit to you, this is utterly morally unacceptable. And that we have a deep, profound responsibility to act on it. There are many causes. There are many issues. We are all involved in many struggles for social justice on many levels. And I know that. And these issues compete for our time. They compete for our attention. They compete for our pocketbooks. But I will say to you this. If we could cure cancer tomorrow morning, the greatest health challenge of our species... Tomorrow, somehow, no more cancer anywhere in the world. We have achieved our greatest health fantasy. It is gone. But we do not also solve the climate crisis. We won't have health. We won't be healthy people. We will have disease. We will have extreme weather affecting our health. We will have food insecurity. We will not be healthy, even if we cure cancer, if we don't solve this issue of climate change. War. War, our greatest fantasy, if we could stop it tomorrow, we could erase hate from every human heart all over the world tomorrow, somehow snap our fingers. No more hate. If you don't have hate, you can't have war. If you don't have war, you don't need a Pentagon. Disband it. Bring all the troops home. No, imagine that. No more war. No more what anthropologists call organized intergroup homicide. It's over. But if we don't also solve the climate crisis, we won't have peace. We will have violence. 
We will have violent weather. We, have, we will have violent impacts on our civilization. We will have sea level rise and Katrina and Rita and Wilma and Sandy over and over again. And nomadic people struggling to feed themselves and displaced. So all I'm saying is that we have to move this one to the top. Because if we don't solve this issue, none of the other issues fundamentally can be solved. We need an exceptional movement. We need a movement of extreme moral passion to stop the extreme weather that is being driven by the extreme energy. Instead of mountaintop removal, we need solar everywhere. Instead of fracking, the violence of hydraulic fracking for natural gas, we need radical efficiency. Europeans use half the energy per capita as Americans use, and yet they have a wonderful society, better education, better health care than we do, etc. They use half the energy per capita. Instead of tar sands we, and deep water drilling, we need wind power. And that's what's so exciting. Wind power, especially in this region. Um, two weeks ago, I was with Mar Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley as he finally signed an offshore wind bill that will incentivize one of the first offshore wind farms in the United States, about 10 miles off the coast of Ocean City. This is the beginning of a clean energy revolution, I'm telling you. From Cape Cod to Cape Hatteras, we are going to have a continuous series of offshore wind farms that's going to power the entire east coast of the United States. It is shallow, it is windy, and it is so close to where we all recharge our iPods and iPhones from Boston to Richmond. This is exciting stuff. And what did it take? It took us three years to get that bill passed in Maryland. Many of you in this room helped us so much with that bill. And how do you make social change happen? How do we respond to civil rights violations, women's suffrage, and climate change? It's hard, but it's simple. Two steps. Two steps to all social change, including how we got the offshore wind bill passed in Maryland after three years. Step number one, build the biggest coalition you possibly can for your issue. Reach out to everybody who's affected by your issue. And with climate change, that's all of us. That's all of us. Labor, white, black, red, whatever your color, whatever your economic status, whatever your age, student, we're all affected. We built the biggest coalition I have ever seen in Maryland over the last three years for offshore wind. When we took the photograph of the governor signing the bill in the, the, the governor's reception room, for the first time anyone can remember in Annapolis, it took three photographs to get the whole coalition in the photograph with the governor. No one could remember that in Annapolis. It's such a big coalition. So number one, build the biggest coalition you can. And step number two, never, ever, 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 ever give up. If you do those two things, ultimately you win. That's how we're going to win on climate change. But we need you to be part of that coalition. We need your help. We need your moral passion. We need your determination. We need the same spirit that put those solar panels on this roof this morning to put more wind farms in the Atlantic, to increase efficiency across our region. So I'm really glad to say that I have hope. I've lived the hope by being part of great coalitions across this country. The coalitions to stop the tar sands pipeline. The coalition to make offshore wind happen in Maryland. And I just want to invite you to make this part of your life. Don't just leave today maybe a little bit better educated on this issue. Maybe a little more inspired on this issue. Please leave here today thinking what action you're going to take. What are you going to do about it? 
got postcards back here later that you can fill out to tell me how I can stay in touch with you. Be part of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Brochures as well. The bottom line is we can change in this country. We have a history of changing explosively. You know, Winston Churchill said that the one thing you can count on Americans is that they will do the right thing after exhausting all other possibilities. <laughs> I think we've exhausted all other possibilities on fossil fuels and climate change. So we're ready to do the right thing. And when we change, whether it's getting involved in World War II, finally solving inequities in, uh, in civil rights, we tend to do it quickly and explosively. Make this part of your life and be the goodest American that you possibly can. Thank you very much.